I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Welcome to Curious Conversations with Tully and Sarah. We sit down and chat with business owners, entrepreneurs, and some of the best conversation starters. This is a podcast about real life lessons and people doing cool shit. What's up, fam? Welcome to another episode of Curious Conversations. Yes, we're still in lockdown in Melbourne. But today we have an amazing episode for you with the beautiful Lauren White. All the way from London London town. We had an amazing call with Lauren and Lauren is literally, I said this in the podcast, but I want to clone her times a million, someone that we all need in our lives. But Lauren talks about how she started drinking at the age of 11 Yeah, she has a really interesting story. She was a drug and alcohol addict, as Tal said, started drinking at 11, rehab by 18. So she talks about addiction, recovery, rehab. Uh, She's talked with the Amy Winehouse Foundation. She's bloody amazing. And honestly, I think it's a really amazing conversation for a lot of us to listen to because even if you don't think you have an addiction, I think it's something that we should all learn from. I think basically from what Lauren said, we all do know. Yes, I know. Yeah. (laughs) <laughs> don't forget yes. to like subscribe and share with all your friends ciao happy wednesday <laughs> welcome to another episode of curious conversations so today we have a beautiful guest all the way from london town lauren hi how are you all right how are you it's nine in the morning here i know it's crazy and it's what time to here 7 p.m and we're sipping on our cup of tea yeah we are but we're so excited to have you how like what's been going on how's life Oh my god! Honestly, life is um. I don't even know how to explain life, but you know what? I am, you know, living and yeah. living my life to my fullest, trying to go day by day by, you know, what I've got to do. You know, I didn't expect for the pandemic to happen, so right. you know, it's gone like the whole year has kind of just gone so fast. It's almost like the whole year is gone. Um. But I'm good. I'm good. I'm I'm dealing with a lot at the moment, which is funny because, you know, I love to share about my honesty and my truth, but I'm trying to kind of stay positive. But also my whole experience of life is always share. So you yeah. can always help mm-hmm. someone else. Yeah. So what I'm doing is I'm always sharing my experience. I'm always sharing what I'm going through so that another person can relate. So that's like my like pay it forward kind of thing. Um, but that. other than that, I'm happy. I've actually seen that on social media laws and I was going to ask you because you are so vocal about sharing and you've been saying that you've been crying a lot lately. Is it about the pandemic? Is it about life? Can you share a bit? Unknown or change? Oh, it's so funny because I got a message from a friend yesterday going, what's going on? Like are you you going through uncertainty with life or pandemic or anything? But... um, about two weeks ago, I got told that my mum uh, got diagnosed with uh, stage three breast cancer. Oh, I'm um, sorry. And that, that's all right. Yeah. It's all right. I mean, that's, you know, something that's kind of like affected me because actually she had it when I was 12 as well. Yeah. Um, and over the last month, I've actually um, been going through a lot mentally with um, my head and, mm. you know, stuff that external stuff that I can't control. So I suffer with something called colitis that um, is like a bowel thing, which actually about a month ago I had a flare up with. So that didn't really go well. And then my sister hasn't been well and all that stuff. So a lot of these things that have been kind of affecting me. And the reason why I share about crying is because, you know, I battled addiction at a young age. I battled mental health stuff. I battled eating disorder and a lot of that um, stuff that I went through my coping mechanisms was picking up these substances to change where I feel. Mm -hmm. And now you know, feeling my feelings is so important. So for me, crying is actually, you know, I I actually praise myself. I'm like, oh my God, you cried, Lauren. Because for so many years, I bottled up those emotions. And for so many years, I actually didn't know how to cry. So now what I'm doing to deal with my problems or dealing with my stuff is I'm like, I'm talking, I'm sharing, I'm crying. I'm, you know, letting those feelings out, which actually is a positive rather than negative. 
Yeah, it actually is. And you've got such an engaged audience on Instagram. I think it's so important to share being vulnerable, especially during the times now. It's like, yeah, it's so important. So tell us a little bit about younger Lauren. Like what were you like growing up as a child? Like tell us a little bit about that so we get to know you a little bit more. I love that. Um, Yeah, so younger Lauren. I mean, I was a very kind of, you know, wacky kind of out there child growing up. I was very loud. Um, but I also had a lot of insecurities at a young mm. age. Um, on the outside, it probably looked like I had everything. Um, came from a really nice family, had a really nice house. Money was basically, you know, there because my dad was successful. Yeah. Um, but on the inside, it always felt less than. Mm-hmm. Um, went to a private school um, growing up in my primary school. Um, and then my secondary school was a Jewish um, private school as well. And a lot of my... Um, issues stemmed from academics from yeah. the beginning it was always yeah. like you know in school I never felt I was good enough I never felt like I could get the grades I never felt like you know I'd be able to succeed in life and I you know I don't know if anyone relates to private schools but they put a lot of pressure on you yeah. to do well and they're like you need to go to university you need to get a degree you need to marry a nice man or whatever yeah. and I always felt like I was never going to succeed in that and my inner battle started from a very young age. Um, the funny thing is, is that the way that I dealt with it from a young age was by being the class clown, by yeah. being popular, by going cl- working in clubs, by, you know, being around people that were drinking and doing drugs. So on the outside, I looked like I actually was loving life when yeah. really I hated life. Um, and even though I was a happy-go-lucky person for so many years... Um, there was a lot of things that affected me mentally and there was a lot of things that affected me um, physically as well. But, you know, at the age of 12, I shared that my mum had breast cancer. Um, the age of 15, my brother had a bit of alcohol issues. Um, my baby brother had cancer when I was 18. There was a lot of trauma oh, in the childhood. You know, there was a lot of stuff that led me to, you know, picking up substances to change where I feel. And then at the age of 14, you know, alcohol and drugs was like my thing. That was like the thing that was going to fuel me to, you know, feel better about myself temporarily, you know, yeah. um, and it did at that moment in time. But, you know, you can have one person that touches a drink and touches a drug and they're fine and they don't yeah. even go full force into like a blown addiction. And then you've got one person who has that addictive personality. Clearly, I do. You know, and the minute I picked up a substance change where I feel, it was almost like that was me. That was mm-hmm. like I was off and running. So the age of 11 to 18 was like my years of just like partying, drinking, drugs. I had bulimia, under eating, overeating, anything under the sun to change where I feel. Um, but really it stemmed, you know, actually by how I felt on the inside. So it was never really about what I looked like. It was just about the inside job because it all stemmed from my self-esteem and not feeling good enough. Yeah. Um, I have a question, Loz. Sorry. When you talk about your drug and alcohol use, can you give us a bit of an insight into how much you were using and what kind of drugs you were using? Yeah. I mean, so I started drinking at the age of like 11, maybe less. I mean, I I went to a Jewish school and there was all these bar mitzvahs. I don't know if you know about bar mitzvahs. Yeah. Everyone just celebrates and you're like 12 years old. And, Mm. you know, I would go to these bar mitzvahs and my first, like, um, experience of alcohol was like at 11 when everyone was getting unlimited alcohol so I used to drink and drink and drink and drink I mean at the beginning it was just like at parties and events but I didn't know the concept of stopping Mm -hmm. so it would just be literally like I loved vodka and Red Bull or vodka and whatever so I just drink and drink and drink until I was paralytically drunk yeah and and you know if I could give you know, um, a sum of what I was drinking at the beginning, it was like, you know, every party I'd have a bottle of vodka and then it would go on to like having three, three times a week, a bottle of vodka or, and mm. um, like every day, you know what I mean? So, and this like is like it when you're 12. Yeah. It was like when I was 12 and then it got worse and worse and worse as I got older. But then, you know, how it happened was alcohol was like my main substance, mm. but then, you know, I smoked a bit of marijuana and I didn't like marijuana. So I got to the point where I was like, actually, you know what? A friend of mine turned around to me. She was like, do you want to try ecstasy Mm. and MDMA? And I was like, okay, why not? Mm. So I did. So I started going to like raves and I started going to like, 
you know, parties and 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 doing you know marijuana, doing ecstasy and MDMA at like fourteen, fifteen years old. Um, and I didn't know anything about these drugs, but they made me feel good. Yeah. Mm. Um, and then by the age of eighteen, it was like every day and and every weekend and uni it was like every day every weekend yeah every day you were using drugs and drinking mainly drinking wow but out but drugs weren't really my story like drugs weren't my I wouldn't say I was addicted to drugs but they were Mm. part of it that was just an outlet it was an outlet it was almost like you know how it would happen would it be like I drink, I do drugs, and then my eating disorder would come into it because yeah. I would starve myself for days due to the drugs, and then I would eat loads of shit, and then I'd purge through my bulimia. Mm. So it was like a cycle that kept yeah. them going on and on and on for years. Yeah. So you checked into rehab at 18. What was the process leading up to that? Was that a voluntary enter yeah. into rehab, or is it something that your family um, forced you into? Yeah, um, it was voluntary, actually. Um, oh, wow. I was lucky enough to, you know, at that time, you know, I, I shared that my, my brother had issues with alcohol. Mm-hmm. He, he's now 12 years sober. Oh, wow. So, yeah, so he actually um, gave up alcohol at 15. So he was like my influence. Oh, and I then love that. My mom, um, yeah, and then my mum, actually, she's sober. So she's now like seven years sober. So at the age of 18... I was really struggling. I was in a controlling relationship with a guy that I would do anything for because mm. I had low self-esteem. Mm. Um, I was basically bulimic every day. Um, I was drinking all the time. That was the time when my baby brother had cancer. So it was like, that was it, rock bottom. Like that was what tricked me off. Um, and I remember just walking around my house, you know, where I live now. Oh, yeah. And being like, I just can't do this anymore. I hate my life. Mm. And I couldn't look at myself in the mirror Every day I was waking up, like, not wanting to get out of bed. And I could see, and the thing is, is, you know, in recovery, we learn about attraction rather than promotion. Like, my family members never promoted recovery to me, mm. but I saw what they had. Mm. So I saw my brother change his life around. I saw my mum change her life around. And I was, like, fucking dying inside. And I was like, I need help. And at that time, a, a friend of mine who actually lives in Australia now, and she got sober and she had the same issues as me. And obviously all these people around me were getting sober. And I was like, I can't do this anymore. You know, mm-hmm. I need to live that life. And there was something inside me. Like it was a trigger point that was like, you need help. Yeah. So I called up my mom that d- one day and I was like, I need to go to rehab. I need help. The funny thing is, is she knew that I was struggling. But, you know, how many times do you like, you know, how if someone tells you to stop smoking or drinking, would you do it? No. no. Wait, it makes you yeah. rebel and you want to do it more. Exactly. So, <laughs> yeah. And and it, it, and at the end of the day, like, you know, I've got friends. I'm always like, oh, don't do that. Don't do that. They're like, yeah. fuck off. You know, like yeah. the only person that can really get help and really change is you. Yeah. So when I was willing to change, that's when I was like, you know what, I need help. And yeah. obviously rehab is a process. You know, I was lucky to you know, have my dad who paid for it because yep. rehab's not, not cheap. Mm-hmm. Um, but it wasn't, I, I always say this, it wasn't like rehab changed my life. It was that rehab was able to take me outside of society, the place that started me mm-hmm. drinking and doing drugs in the first place and put me into an institution that was able to kind of reboot and rewire my you know, my habits and look at myself because if I was out in society still in that environment, it would be much harder. But coming out of rehab was the true journey. Yeah. Do you know what I mean? Yeah. yeah. Like it, it didn't That's when get the me hard so work cool. happened. Yeah. Do you think that having all, you know, your family members around you that had gone sober and gone through a rehab, do you reckon if they hadn't done that, you would have been strong enough to volunteer to go to rehab if you hadn't have seen them around you getting sober? I think that personally, and like, you know, I'm all about opinions and, and disagreements, but I think that addiction and, and mental health and um, alcoholism is more common than a lot of people think. Okay. Um, Do you think it's genetic? I, um, I don't, I think that, you know, you learn that it can be genetic, also mm. be environmental. Um, there's two different parts to it. There's no real answer to yeah. addiction. Yeah. When I studied addiction, like I went in thinking I was going to get an answer and they were like, no, there's no real answer. There's different opinions oh, and there's oh, different wow. um, studies. Yeah. Um, some people, some, some uh, psychologists believe that it's a brain disease. Uh-huh. 
And some psychologists believe that you can get it through environmental factors. Yeah. Um, but what I do know is that a lot of people don't understand addiction because they think that you have to be a full-blown like heroin addict to be mm-hmm. an addict. You know, like I see, and you know, I don't like saying it all the time, but I see people that are working like in banks, mm-hmm. like honestly, that are like nine to five billionaires jobs, but they still drink like addicts. Yeah. Because yeah. that's what addiction is. Um, so I think if my parents, my mum and my brother weren't in recovery, mm-hmm. I think it would be harder for me to justify it because I was 18. Mm-hmm. I was having fun at uni. I had friends that were worse than me. Do you know what I mean? Like yeah. this is the thing, we ju- I justified it because I was like, I'm young. You know, how many people, you know, drink like alcoholically when they're young? But I was lucky enough to have my family there with that were like, you know what, it doesn't matter whether you're a drug addict or an alcoholic, but you're going down this route. Mm-hmm. Let's try and nip it in the bud before it gets worse. Because if I carried on, I would have ended up doing things that I never thought I'd end up doing. Yeah. And that's how it was. So I was lucky that I gave it up at 18, not even justifying it and saying, you know what, I'm a full-blown alcoholic mm-hmm. or a drug addict, but saying, you know what, I could end up being a whiskey drinker on a bar bench or a heroin addict mm-hmm. on the side of the street. So I was lucky to have them in my family to be like that. If they weren't in my family, I think it would be much harder for me to justify it because I'd just be like, you know what, I'm just drinking. Yeah. And I think you, know? you, you touched on a point before that addiction isn't just around drugs and alcohol. Yeah. And you had a really good definition about um, addiction on your Instagram, one of your TV live things the other day and I was like oh wow can you just give people what you said of what addiction actually is yeah yeah um yeah addiction is pretty much when you become a a dependent on a substance that you can't be without it you know and a prime example of one is the phone yeah yeah you know um uh of course our phones you know they actually in itself I believe you know even with Instagram, I don't know if you've uh, watched the Social Dilemma, the program yeah. on Netflix. Sarah has. I'm too scared so, to watch it. <laughs> yeah, you should watch it, I but it's scary. But it's it, what what they make you do is they they put they put things like dopamine, right? You know what dopamine? Yeah, is? Mm-hmm. dopamine drug, like, pretty yeah. much. Yeah, so it, they put things in there that will make you addicted to it, mm. like likes and stuff like that, or like exactly, yeah. and 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 um. As human beings, we all learn about the reward systems. Mm-hmm. And our reward system is we're going to go for something that we're going to get rewarded. Mm-hmm. And, you know, if we keep going down to the likes, we're going to start, like, releasing that reward system, thinking, oh, my God, you know what? I'm getting more rewards. I'm getting more rewards. Mm-hmm. And that makes us addicted to it. That makes us get that kind of dopamine kind of fix or whatever it is. And that's what, obviously, you know, you get in heroin, you get in, in, in cocaine, you get in drugs or whatever. Even getting sugar which is an, yeah, an, a yeah. very addictive um, thing. And that's what I share about sugar being, you know, really addictive. But addiction can lie in anything. But it's all about the underlying issue to why we do it. Mm-hmm. So, you know, I can wake up each day and I can, you know, um, every single day subconsciously create a habit where I get to the point where I'm doing it every single day. It may not be bad for me, but I become addicted to it. Yeah. And there's a reason why I'm doing it. So, you know, even like with people with OCD, they have addictions because mm-hmm. they're doing something over and over again. And when you do something over and over again, it becomes a habit. It becomes a behavior. It becomes a pattern. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's a, it's basically a dependency on something. And, and I always share about having the awareness around it because a lot of people don't, don't know that they're doing it mm-hmm. and they don't know that it's bad for them, but it becomes something that they can't stop. Like yeah. coffee is an addiction yeah. if you're doing it every single I'm day. That. I'm like, I think I'm addicted to coffee. <laughs> yeah, but so in, am I. Fa- in yeah. saying that, how do you, how does one who's in a pattern and a habit become aware and break the habit? That was going to be my yeah. question. Yeah. So, I mean, it's all about re- rewiring the brain, you mm-hmm. know. Um, uh, you know, I'm doing a life coaching course at the moment. Um, and, you know, the one of the main things we learn about is neuro-linguistic programming yeah. and the programming in the brain. Each one of us is coded. Each mm-hmm. one of us is different. So you guys will be different to each other. You guys would have a different programming um, that you have inside you. And it usually comes from our childhood. Yeah. Yeah. And it usually comes from the way that we've been brought up. But at any time, 
as long as we have the awareness and we have the control, because we do have the control, we can rewire our brain, but we need to do work around it. So, you know, it takes 28 days to break a habit. That's why when people go into rehab, they do rehab for 28 days. Because, you know, the minute you take your you take yourself away from a substance, let's just say alcohol, mm-hmm. and you start doing something different, like exercise, or you start doing different, like, um, you know, having a bath, you're transferring one substance for another, but yeah. it's a healthier yeah. substance, whatever it is. Yeah. So instead yeah. of picking up alcohol, you pick up the phone. And you just keep doing that and doing that and doing that and having the awareness around it. And you, it's about rewiring the brain, rewiring those patterns and those kind of those pathways that are going to get you to do something more healthier so that's why when I came out of rehab for 20 for four months I was without alcohol and it was the best thing I ever did and obviously it was much easier to be away from the substance because I wasn't doing it for so long but you know the problem the main thing around alcohol and 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 environmental stuff is that you can go back into a bar and be triggered off by associations Mm. So I can go into a bar and I can go alcohol. My first thing and my first instinct is alcohol. You know, and that's why for the first like year, I didn't go out clubbing. I didn't go to bars. I didn't go to places that would trigger me off. But when you start to um, assert yourself, you start to say no, you start to do different things and you start to actually, your associations become, no, I don't want to do it anymore. I want to go and train. Mm -hmm. And you start to feel better about yourself when you train rather than, alcohol from years and years on when you you start to do the things that make you feel better and you become a habit and you create that habit you go more towards the thing that makes you feel better than the things that makes you feel worse so like eight years now being sober I associate alcohol as for me the death like I can't do it anymore because I've been away from it for so long and I'm not dependent on it anymore and I've created new habits in my life and new things to make me feel better about myself I'm more likely instead of going to alcohol go to uh exercise Mm. or friends because I've created that new habit and that new pattern that was obviously been more successful than the other one but at the beginning, it's hard. You need to detach yourself from it. You need to have the awareness at the beginning. You need to, I would say, 28 days, just do something different every single day. And maybe, you know, I always say be accountable to someone, you know. Like, I said, at the moment, me and my best friend, we are doing this thing where I'm trying to get away from uh, sugar. <laughs> I don't eat as much, but sugar is like, it is crack. Yeah. And she wants to help her gut. So we're doing three weeks of... um uh we're doing three weeks of um like eating well yeah mm-hmm. and we're staying accountable to each other and I'm writing down each day in my journal like today this today that you know subconsciously my body will go back to sugar it will want to go back to sugar mm-hmm. but those hard times instead of picking up sugar I pick up the phone that's a good idea I up- yeah I was gonna say Liz but if say in that three weeks you do laps do you judge yourself harshly or you just like nah Get back, get back on the bandwagon. Again. What get happens to people who do relapse when it like shit gets hard and you're like, for fuck's sake, what the hell's yeah. going on? And you say do re- relapse and how do you pick yourself back up from that? Yeah, I mean, it's hard. Like, yeah. you know, um, I don't know if you know anything about 12-step therapy. No. I've heard about it. Is this something that I, I wanted to know what you learned in rehab. Is that out with yeah. the AA? No. The yeah, yeah, it is. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It is. yeah. 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 So, 12-step therapy is a, is a type of therapy. There's different types of therapies. There's CBT, DBT, trauma therapy. You know, everyone, you know, has different types of therapy that works for them. But the main therapy that works for addicts, I would say, and what saved me was 12 steps. And it was 12 steps of Alcoholics Anonymous or, or mm-hmm. Cocaine Anonymous. It's any, any anonymous or any substance um, that you choose. Mm-hmm. And it starts from a process of... Um, like kind of working through these steps and it starts at the beginning. The first one is that you have become powerless over that drug and that you need to get honest about it. And that's the first step, having that awareness and getting honest and surrendering to anything, you know? Um, And when you become in a process of AA, you live a life of abstinence. Mm -hmm. So for me, I'm in a life of abstinence. I'm never going to drink again. That's Mm -hmm. just a fact. 
But throughout that process, people do relapse. Yeah. You know, I know people that have relapsed. And in 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 the program of Alcoholics Anonymous, there is almost like when you relapse, you go back to the beginning. Mm-hmm. And that does make people feel a little bit shameful or guilty or upset that they've yeah. gone right to the beginning. But also there's no judgment around it. You know, there's no like, you know, life is worth living and life is long. So if you have one relapse out of, you know, let's just say two months after drinking and doing drugs for 12 years, I think that's amazing. Yeah, I, I, do, I do too. too. Yeah. So it's... But it's the perspective of it, isn't it? So yeah. you can either sit there and beat, because I think the more you beat yourself up about anything, you know, even like, let's just say you had a weekend of eating shit and drinking. When you wake up on that Monday and you start to feel shit about yourself, does it make you feel better? No, no way. It makes yeah. you feel even more shit about yourself. Yeah. And then you start to self-loathe and go into depression and anxiety and you're well, like, oh, well, fuck, I've got to do it. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Just a, an- another unhealthy yeah, habit. Yeah, unhealthy habit. Yeah. How... Um, important are group meetings in recovery and do you still attend group meetings I think that group meetings are amazing I think that you know when I went into rehab I was in for four months and I was surrounded by literally like meanwhile I was a girl that was very I wouldn't say that I was superficial or egotistic but I was that type of girl that lived that life that on the outside like you know, I worked in clubs and I surrounded myself around cool people and I, you know, looked the shit, but I really wasn't the shit. Yeah. And when I went into rehab, the people I surrounded myself around with were like heroin addicts, drug addicts, sex addicts, meth addicts, gaming addicts, addicts all over the sun. And it, it really took me to light. It made me get humble about myself. And it also made me realize that I'm not alone. Yeah. Because how many people can literally be thinking that they're surrounded by so many people, yet they feel like they're the only one that's going through this. Yeah, Yeah. so true. And for me to walk in a room and to be like, you know, identification with these different people, and actually it wasn't, so it's never really about the substance you're going through. The feelings are all the same, Mm. you know? So I can sit in a room and there can be a heroin addict, so like literally sitting there talking about abandonment and rejection issues. And I can sit there, just this little girl being like, oh my God, I relate. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Just because they picked up a, a different substance or a substance is way worse. We've probably been through exactly the same thing. Yeah. And that was an eye opener for me because I actually started to feel like, you know what, I am not alone. Mm. And that was amazing. And yeah. for the first, you know, for the first seven years, recovery was my life. Like going to meetings. It was four meetings a week. Even in Hong Kong, when I lived in Hong Kong, I was militant in it. Yeah. Um, but as I got back from Hong Kong, I started to really kind of get to the point where for me, it wasn't about going to recovery meetings. I started to believe that recovery meetings were always going to be there. When I'm struggling, I can go to recovery meetings, but I can make recovery my life. Yeah. Mm -hmm. I live and breathe recovery. All my friends that I'm friends with have been through similar things than me. I can pick up the phone to someone at any time. You know, I wake up and I journal. I do the things in the recovery process that help me live my life to my fullest. Because a lot of the 12 steps are around, like, you know, not having resentments towards people, making amends to people, um, prayer and meditation, um, having a faith, having God in your life. And I'm so big around that. Mm -hmm. So even though I don't really go to meetings anymore, I feel like I preach recovery still. Mm -hmm, Definitely. I have a lot of people around me that are recovery based that actually, you know, I have a meeting, even though I don't have a meeting. Yeah. Yeah. You're so lucky that you are surrounded around those people. I just want to go back. You lived in Hong Kong for a little while. Yeah. Hong Kong. And that's where we met you. Obviously Hong Kong's quite a party and alcohol scene. How did you like, I know you went to AA and stuff, but did you ever like, tell us a little bit about that? It was mad. I mean, when I got to Hong Kong, I didn't even realize that it was that mad. It's crazy. Like, I've never been to a city that is like that in my life. It's almost like I got there and I I had no clue. Yeah. Like, not that I'm ignorant, but I thought that everyone was going to be, like, Asian. (laughs) (laughs) No, literally. But it's such a Western city and it's, like, a lot of money, a lot of alcohol, a lot of partying, like, that would have been scary for you to realise. Like, were you scared or did you feel so comfortable in yourself and your recovery that you were like, nah, man, I've got this? I mean, like, I'm just trying to think of what it was like when I first got there. I mean, 
the madness is, is that I don't know, I, I share this a lot, but like about six months before, mm. I checked back into rehab again. Did you? To do, to di- add it, to deal yeah. with a work addiction. Mm-hmm. And I nearly, I nearly tried to kill him. I nearly tried to kill myself through an overdose because I oh, made myself oh, physically oh, ill. I didn't know that. I didn't know that either. Yeah. It was literally at the age of 21, I was yet again working in clubs. Yeah. I was surrounding myself around the wrong people. I was people pleasing. I was self-sabotaging in just like starving myself. It wasn't even just drinking drugs. It was just another substance. Yeah. And um, I did a lot of work around myself when I went to rehab the second time. And I was much older. So I was like 21, 22. And, you know, this rehab kind of showed me, you know, what life I wanted to live and who I wanted to be. So when I got the call to go to Hong Kong, I kind of knew who I wanted to be. And I kind of felt like I changed. And I just left the clubbing scene. And after years and years of being sober in nightlife, I realised that that wasn't for me. So I was kind of over it. So the minute I walked into moved to Hong Kong, I knew that, that that was not the scene that I wanted to be in because I worked in it for years. Yeah. And um, the first thing I did that Sunday was I walked into an AA meeting and it was the best thing I ever did because I got myself a sponsor. And the sponsor oh, is someone who's like your mentor. Yeah. So I was able to have people around me that were like twice my age that were able to keep me sane. Mm-hmm. I love um, it. But it it could have gone two ways because no one knew me. So I could have gone back out there 100%. and no one would have known. Yeah. And also moving to like a completely different city, like that would trigger maybe some of the insecurity and those thoughts again. Yeah. I was lucky because I knew that my passion was fitness. And for oh, anyone yeah. who struggles, like, you know, when I moved to Hong Kong and I went to hit 45, you know, I found you know, people that were very into fitness that were all like not drinking, that were all very like all about hiking on the weekends. And I think because I knew that that made me happy and that made me feel good about myself, I went towards more of that than I did going out. Mm-hmm. Um, but I just, I think after years and years of torment of like destroying my body and ending up in places that I never ever thought I'd end up and, you know, those seedy feelings that you'd wake up after doing drugs and drinking and ending up in guys' like hotel rooms like it it just made me feel sick by the end of it you know Mm -hmm. so that feeling of sickness kind of outweighed the feeling of feeling good sorry the feeling of feeling good outweighed the feeling of feeling sick so you know I'd always fast forward to how I'd feel if I'd end up drinking like it it, it would kill me yeah um I'm just gonna switch up topics a little bit because I just had a um brainwave that you've actually worked with the Amy Winehouse Foundation as well and when you're in Hong Kong you studied your master's in what was that psychology in London London I studied oh in London yeah was Was that in psychology and addiction as well yeah psychology and addiction so can you tell me about what you actually have done or still do with the Amy Winehouse Foundation and what you learned from doing your master's in addiction yeah, 100%. I mean, I don't really do much with the foundation anymore. They're not as active around their program of resilience. But, I mean, I'm, I've always been very good. I've always been very good friends with Amy's parents and I yeah. still speak to them now and then. Um, but at the age of 18, when I got sober, mm-hmm. um, I started working for them and going into schools to do talks around my story and addiction um so I guess that saved me didn't it because I had a purpose and that was when I found my purpose in life which was speaking Mm -hmm. um and I did it for years and I did it for the Princess Trust as well um which is Prince Charles's foundation um and then I did it in Hong Kong actually I started going into schools um around schools in Asia um schools in Hong Kong mainly schools that were private that you know a lot of schools in Hong Kong you know, have a lot of issues with mm. feelings and thoughts and, mm. you know, actually dealing with problems. Mm. Um, and that's when, you know, I got to the point where I've been, wor- I've been working with, in fitness, like teaching for years. And I always knew that deep down speaking and mental health was like my passion. Um, so when I got back from Hong Kong, I enrolled in London South Bank Uni, did a year in um, addiction psychology um, masters. I was the youngest person on my course. Everyone was twice my age. Um, And that was all about learning about like how addiction forms, learning about like um, different types of addictions, learning about the process, you know, if you were to go to rehab and 
um, the process of like, you know, um, the before rehab stage. Um, and it was the best thing I ever did. Um, and from that, I worked in a rehab in near me um, for about five months, which I loved. Um, and now I'm doing, I'm doing a life coaching course because I want to help people with self-sabotage and I want to build up my own business now. Yeah. Um, so I've got a website coming soon. Um, I'm working with a business coach to help niche, niche my market. Um, so it's all coming together. Love that. Um, with the foundation, you know, they, they started me. But I think it got to the point where I was like, I want to go down my own route. Mm. And I want to help people um, with one-to-one coaching um, and help people with um, mainly a group setting. Because um, it was just schools and it was volunteering at the beginning with the foundation. Yeah, I feel like so, we need to clone you like times a thousand and just have you everywhere because you're just like, you're amazing. Your story and what you do now is bloody amazing. I love it, honestly. Yeah, we need to clone you. <laughs> um, talking about helping people, do you think we have to start helping teenagers earlier when it comes to addiction seeing so especially with in, social media in my head and from what listening to you addiction comes from such an early childhood trauma so if you can get some kind of understanding of your life at an earlier age you kind of you're already beating the addiction path yeah mm-hmm. 100% i mean i always share that my addiction started when i was like 8 yeah like i i picked up let's just say when I was going through my trauma, I picked up, you know, constantly, constantly watching like Orange County in my room mm. and, and watching One Tree Hill and sub like literally it was all about fantasizing to be in a different world and be yes. in a different reality. And, you know, before it was before I picked up a substance, it was something. It mm. was something to take me outside of myself, to change where I feel so I can't, I, I'm not living and feeling. Mm-hmm. And a lot of people don't understand that. And that's why I loved going into schools because I always talked to kids about the things that they were doing before they were doing drugs and alcohol because mm-hmm. a lot of them hadn't picked up drugs and alcohol. But a lot of them were like, you know, let's just say isolating in their bedroom or over gaming or yeah. um, I would say a lot of them were like, you know, after school eating loads of chocolate cakes. And that's the start of it. Mm-hmm. But they don't have an awareness around it. and if you can have that awareness around it and change it from the beginning, then you can have healthy, healthier habits. But the problem is, is that no one teaches parents how to be parents. Yeah. No one teaches kids yeah. how to be kids. You don't go to school and I know they should change it, but they don't tell you these things. Mm. You know, they tell you how to do maths and English, but yeah. they don't tell you about life skills. Yeah. That was actually right? one of my questions. I was going to say, if you could bring one program into the schooling curriculum, what would it be? It'd be to learn... Your, yeah, yeah, I think we need to learn like that. But also, there's so there's 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 a lack of awareness around self love and self acceptance. Yeah, mm. I agree. And a lot of people they spend like for me when I was like let's just say 11 years old, and this is when my eating disorder got the worst. Mm. I had this fantasy that I wanted to be a, like a model. Yeah, I had this fantasy that I wanted to be tiny, and I was the only way I was going to be successful is and guys were going to like me is if I was a size zero. Yeah. Where did I find that? I found that on the internet. I found that yeah. on social media. I found that in magazines. And all I did growing up was compare myself to others. Mm-hmm. But what I didn't do was learn how to love myself and, and have that self-acceptance within myself. And there needs to be more programs and more kind of access to kind of learning what's right for you because I think you know especially in London I'm not sure about Melbourne but in London it's like I almost feel like we're on autopilot and we're yeah. all close yeah. with each other and we're all going from this expectation to like you know work in banks and be lawyers and be like everyone else when really actually we can't be anyone else we have to yeah. be ourselves and we have to learn how to love ourselves and learn what's right for us yeah but we're yeah. like it's almost like society has grained us into thinking that this is the right way and really there's no right or wrong it's just about what is do you know what I mean well that's basically how I was and I think Tal was brought up too society dictates your validation in a way and that's horrible thing but it really does you you think you need a good score at high school you need to get into university you need a good job you need to get married you need to have kids and now we're like fucking 32 and (laughs) half the stuff like we should have done by now, but we haven't. No, and you just got to remember that it's your journey. Yeah. But, yeah, it's true. And also, like, 
you know, celebrate your wins, celebrate the things that you've yeah. you know, done rather than you haven't done. Like I'm 27, mm. you know, a lot of my friends growing up, I'm Jewish, mm. like, you know, a lot of them are married with kids. Yeah. And then there was an enemy of me, like for years being like, I'm, I haven't found someone, I, I mean, obviously I've got a boyfriend now, but I haven't found someone that I want to get married to. Or I haven't got kids or whatever. But then again, they may be looking at me and they may be like, you've traveled the world, you've done this, you've exactly. done that. And actually at the end of the day, we're not going to have everything, but we've got to, you know, really kind of, you know, celebrate the things that we do have and the thing yeah. that we have done because we won't be able to do everything. And unfortunately, you know, what really fucked me for so many years was this perfectionism mentality of I need to be perfect and I need yeah. to get everything right. And I need to, you know, make everyone see that I'm this successful woman that, you know, and that's why I did write that thing yesterday being like, I have been struggling the last month, you know, mm-hmm. I wrote a post yesterday being like, you know what, well, I am struggling, but that doesn't mean that I've got a bad life or I'm going through a bad thing. Oh, it means right. that I'm human. And that's what makes me human. And that, you know, at the end of the day, like there's, there's no point in me pretending like I'm living this perfect life when I'm not. Yeah. I think it's important, especially on social media, because we all show our highlight (laughs) reel. Highlight reel. And I'm guilty of it as well. And I try to be as real and vulnerable as as possible, but yeah, I just have to say, like, kudos to you because yeah. I'm not, I'm not diminishing you, oh, no, but no, no, your, no. your vulnerability oh, no, is a thousand times bigger than Tal's. Hundred percent, like I, yeah, hundred percent, like it's. Get it though, I get it though. Yeah, I know, but I, it, I, I can't, I can't, I can't, um, I can't say that I know what you're thinking at the moment, but for yes. me. Growing up, the reason why I was so scared to get honest about my feelings and say what was true was because I was scared to be accepted. Yeah. I was scared to get honest and for people to think, because vulnerability is terrifying. It is. Yeah. You know, um, and for so long I didn't get vulnerable. And I have, a lo- I have a lot of friends that are, you know, influencers that, you know, have amazing big followings, but they do show that life of like yeah. living on a beach or, and that's, and that's what gets, but that's the, but that's the problem. That's what gets them likes. That's what gets them followers. That's, the, that's yeah. who they follow, mm. you know? So when I first moved to Hong Kong, a lot of my um, Instagram was all about being around celebrities. That was like clubbing me, mm-hmm. Lauren me, yeah. all about being around celebrities. And people love that. But what I did when I moved to Hong Kong was I deleted all my photos oh. and I started to change it all and go into actually, this is who I am. This yeah. is the real, me. you know, um, and it was the best thing I ever did, but it's terrifying to take that step. Mm. And it's like, even yesterday, you know, writing that post is terrifying because you think that, you know, deep down, especially, you know, I work for a really high end gym and I love the gym, mm. but it's all surrounded by models and well-known people. Mm. And there is an element of like, oh, are they going to accept me? Because I'm saying that I'm not, that I'm like not perfect. Yeah. You, you just don't know. Yeah. But the thing is, is, what I've realized in my life is actually like, I've become happier when people have accepted me for me mm-hmm. and people have loved me for me, not the person that I'm pretending to be. And I'm not saying you're pretending to be that, but no. what I'm trying to say yeah. is that, that that's what made me happier. Mm. But the problem is, is in the day-to-day society is we all, even me, even you guys, we all have, we all have an ego and oh, ego oh. is not, it's not a bad thing. Ego is in us mm. and there is always going to be an element of fear and ego is driven by fear and ego is something that stops us from getting vulnerable. And you know, the amount of times where like my ego would come out and I'd be like, look at me, I'm fucking smashing it and whatever. And it comes out and it's not because I'm egotistic. It's because I'm scared. Yeah. And I'm scared to say, you know what? I'm Lauren and I'm struggling. Yeah. But it's the feeling when you do get honest about it, you know, yeah. because actually at the end of the day, it doesn't matter if you're fucking Kim Kardashian or you're Obama or yeah. whoever under the sun, sorry, I didn't mean swear. Oh, no, swear away. We all have it, though. Yeah. Like, you know, money does not define us. You know, cars do not define us. Even having a boyfriend or, you know, being successful, it doesn't define us because really the only person that's really struggling or really being authentic in ourselves is us at yes. the end of the day. The happiness is the most important thing. Someone listening and they're like, fuck, I want that, I want that eternal happiness how do they what would you say is the first step of finding that self-validation um the first step always is 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 awareness you know so I always say to someone you know pinpoint the problem pinpoint you know what's going on in your life 
So um, say if you say if you feel like you're unhappy, you have to actually sit with yourself and be like, shit, why am I unhappy? Is it because I'm yeah. comparing myself to other people or what? Yeah. yeah. Okay. So it can be anything, you know, like I I personally think that at the end of the day, the reason why a lot of people are unhappy is because they're not their authentic selves. Mm-hmm. And you know, they've become someone that they're not. So they've tried to keep up in society or tried to compare themselves to others or put a lot of pressure to themselves to have a high-end job or or make loads of money or whatever. And I think, you know, the first thing is always to go back to your authentic self. Mm-hmm. Go back to the person you were when you were like, you know, one to eight, you know? Yeah. And be, be utterly and openly able to kind of, you know, just be that person. And, you know, I took my makeup off. I'd stopped, you know, wearing dresses because I was a tomboy. And I became unhappy because I lost my identity by trying to fit this mould that someone else was basically trying to fit for me. And I became happier when I stopped trying to do that. Mm. So if anyone's struggling out there, look into your life and ask yourself what's going on. So someone, I mean, I won't say the person because it's anonymous, but someone messaged me yesterday being like, I'm really struggling at the moment. And, you know, I've got a really high end job. I'm putting a lot of pressure on myself um, to be successful, you know, and, and, and that's it. That's the first bit. Why do you, why do you need that high end job? Mm -hmm. You know, with life coaching, we tell you, you know, why do you need that high end job? Oh, because my mum's scared that she's going to, my mum's scared that I'm not going to be successful or my brother doesn't think I'm going to do this. It's all the external factors. Actually, do you know what? It's about going back and saying to you what is going to make you happy. Let's just say, for example, this person wants to move to Bali and live a life, but they're scared of change. Mm -hmm. Fucking do it. Just do it. What's what are you scared about? And I'm telling you, the more you put in these actions, the more you make the change, the more you become your authentic self and you start to make decisions for yourself, the more your self-esteem grows, the more your happiness grows, and the more you feel worth, you'll yeah. feel your worth. And that's where it stems from. So I started to become happier when I was like, allow working in clubs, allow wearing makeup, allow wearing dresses, it's not me, allow trying to be someone I'm not, allow trying to put a lot of pressure on myself, comparing myself to others, allow trying to be perfect that one day, you know, I will have a failure day. And that's when I became happier because I was like, actually, you don't, you know what, I don't need to put so much pressure on myself. And it was a release completely. Wow, that's actually really fun. that answers the question. Yeah, Yeah. yeah, it does. It answers more than the question. I think it's like super powerful. I just want to ask one more question before we kind of like, going to towards the end if you were looking back on your childhood now what would you tell young Lauren like if you had to give her like one little thing of advice what would you tell her I already think I might I think I know what you're gonna say but what do you what would you say oh do you know what I would just say I, I mean I've got it tattooed on my arm but I just say be kind to yourself yeah, yeah. You know, I, I beat myself up for so many years uh-huh. you know I self-sabotaged for so many years um and 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 it was like I didn't have to do that you know that little child and I've done a lot of inner child work you know where I've actually gone into that little Lauren and that's my favorite type of therapy and work to be honest I actually did it this year yeah end of last year no this year I love that it's it's fucking amazing and it hits like a different spot I was actually talking to a friend today and they're like, what kind of meditation are you doing at the moment? And I said, my favorite one is to always go back and sit with my younger self and just have mm-hmm. a conversation yeah. with her. Yeah. yeah. Honestly, like the madness is, is that all we want in life is love. Mm-hmm. And it's cool. Yeah. Always all comes down to that. Life, it always comes down to the fact that we always just want a fucking hug. Yeah. yeah. You know, and my Maybe not tell. Was- she doesn't <laughs> like hugs. I mean, I... I- <laughs> I'm always like, no, but it is. It always comes down to love. Like every, you know, whenever you sit there and work with you, like, oh my god, this is so crazy. It's as easy as just love. Yeah, and 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 for so many years, you know, from the age of four, Mm. you know, like I said, you know, our priming ages are one to eight, and that's Mm. when we're priming everything and becoming the person that we are. But the minute. I don't think society's fucked, but I think that, well, I do, but. Yeah, it's okay. As we get older, we get this, like, we get shaped into this person that we kind of really aren't and we never were. You know, Mm. look look at us when we were, like, four years old. Like, did we care about, you know, getting muddy? No way. We we just were free. We were just free. Um, And, you know, now it's like, 
nature's my purpose. Like I love when I go out in nature and I love when I kind of, you know, just have that kind of not worry and care in the world. And, you know, that's what I would tell myself when I was younger, just don't care. Yeah. Just love yourself no matter what, forgive yourself no matter what. When you make mistakes, just learn from them. Don't beat yourself up and just always be kind to yourself. You know, there's no, I don't think there's no, there's no point in just kind of, you know, always, always beating yourself up for your mistakes. And I think a lot of us do that. I feel like I'm doing that right now. <laughs> <laughs> well, now you know. Yeah. <laughs> no, I love that, Loz. Yeah, that is so good. So we always wrap up our podcast with a little bit of a game. And it's Sarah's yeah, game. That. It's fun, Sarah's game. So I'm going to take it over, um, hand it over to Sarah. Uh, it's it's my thing. I love it. I love food. And Tal and I always play this game when we travel and we're bored. We need to kill time. And for some reason, our answers always change. Maybe we're just getting older. I don't know. But it's your final meal, entree, main, dessert. What are you going to have? <laughs> oh, fuck. I know. it's, it, But it's like it's the best question because you really get to know someone and it really makes you think and you get right into it. It's so good. So entree, main, dessert. dessert. Okay. So entree would be, oh, don't even ask why. I don't even know <laughs> why, but I love pate. Oh, oh yum. Yum. Really? Could write that. Yeah, I don't with, know. But with crackers? Yeah. Yeah. Oh, cheese. Yeah, mm-hmm. yum. Um, Maine, don't ask, but I'm just, I love salmon. Oh my God, we but just had salmon for dinner. Yeah, we did. Yeah. So salmon's the best, but then again, I love a prawn, I love a linguine. Yeah, oh, yeah, good. We, it's your dying meal, so you can have both. It's fine. Oh, yeah, that's true. <laughs> I love both. Um, and then for dessert, a cheesecake any day. Oh, the cheesecake factory. I fucking love cheesecake. Like, oh, my, it has. I love the baked cheesecake. I don't know why. Like, done. Done. Why well, you guys? Though? Yeah, fuck. <laughs> it's my. I'm like, it's my. Fa- I could eat it for breakfast. It's like so good. Well, Loz, thank you so much for jumping on with this. And honestly, I think you are going to make such a big difference in this world and 100%. helping people. And I can't wait to see what you do with your coaching and I hope everyone can jump online and follow you yeah definitely but also I am congratulations eight years sober but I'm also I'm sending you big love to you and your mom and your whole family in this time and I hope your day picks up I know you're a bloody legend like I said I wish we could clone you times a million and when we can travel we're coming to bloody London I know you can come to London again yeah (laughs) come to Australia not now but yeah thank you so much and big big love Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details.